No thinking. I want you to be spontaneous. How's that? Um, I'm going to say a word. I want you to say uh, what comes to, to your mind just when I say the word, okay? You ready? Law. Order. Law and order. Special Victims Unit. <laughs> of course. TV comes to your mind. Of course it does. <laughs> My mind. I don't know. Moses. Ten Commandments. You're a real religious crowd. How many people down on the street corner today, if you walked up to them and said, what do you think of when you hear the word law, would say Moses or the Ten Commandments? Probably not very many, but I have to appreciate money. Somebody said, somebody say money. Or did I just, okay. Pow, thank you, punishment. Yeah. That's probably closer to what you'd get on the street corner, right? Um, you know, there's, there is a lot of, uh, just a lot of negativity that comes with the subject of law. And uh, I, was, uh, I was searching uh, for, uh, actually, I was searching, searching for backgrounds uh, on membership. I, I punched in something like high-definition uh, background membership or something like that. And uh, one, and I was, as I was going through the page of the results, this slide that Dave's going to bring up now caught my eye. Or this, uh, it's a slide this morning, but this, this uh, website caught my eye. Now, you can't read that little print, and that's okay, because I didn't really want you to read that little print. Uh, I, I will tell you, uh, uh, you know, some of what it says. But the, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm scanning the page, and, and, the, and of course the yellow and black ca caught my eyes. I'm partially colorblind. I see yellow really well, and uh, it caught my eye. And, uh, and uh, of course, it's obviously designed to draw you in anyway, right? It's designed in such a way that it kind of draws, draws your attention into this, this image. And uh, so it says, you can read the top, it says Shadow Web. Um, uh, Underneath that, what you probably can't read, it says, you've reached the hidden gateway to the shadow web. The shadow web hosts the contents too dark for the deep web and should be secret. Then at the bottom it says, if you choose to join us, you know what we do. I read that and thought, what's that mean? I don't even want to think about what that means. And this says membership is a one-time fee of uh, 0.5 BCT. And I don't know what that is, but it might be bitcoins, is it? Um, then at the very bottom, it says, shows are free to watch for members. I'm thinking, shows? What kind of shows are we talking about? I don't think I want to know that either. And then it says... To take full control of the show, you'll have to win an auction. And I have no idea what they're talking about. And I don't want to know. So if you know, don't tell me. Because I don't want to know. Um, because it sounds to me a lot like what the scripture says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12, where it says some things we shouldn't even talk about. You don't know that there is a scripture that says that, right, in Ephesians 5 that some things shouldn't even be discussed. 
Now, I've heard of the dark web. You probably have heard of the dark web, and whether it's a television show or on the news, you hear something. Once in a while, you hear about the dark web. And I, don't, I know probably zero about the dark web, but I think it probably does exist. I don't know for sure. It could be just a bunch of hype. Maybe this is just a bunch of hype. Maybe it's somebody's idea of a joke. I don't know. Because I didn't click on it to find out, okay? Um, and I don't want to search it out. Uh, because I, just looking at that made me want to have a shower. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, right? Because I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I am capable of despicable thoughts and actions. But it's just a little bit shocking sometimes when we see the very worst of our hearts capsulated in an image in front of us. And that's what this kind of does. You don't even have to click on it. I didn't click on it. I would suggest to you, if you ever come across this, that you don't click on it either. But you don't have to click on it to know that you're looking at something that's very dark. You don't have to click on it to, to, to even see what it is because it's, it's like it's right there in front of you. Like a, a doorway. A passageway. Now, I share that with you this morning because we are about five months into a three-year journey through the Bible. Dave, let's switch up that slide there <coughs> with another one. We are about five months into a three-year journey through the Bible. Now, I, I'm pretty excited about that, and the more we get into it, the more excited I get. I think, you know, this is really cool. Three years, we're going to go through the whole Bible. Now, we're not going to touch on every story, and we're not going to be able to pick up on all of the material, because you can't do that on, you know, uh, uh, how many, uh, 20, yeah, whatever, 60-some Sundays. I don't know. Am I close? 150? How many weeks do you have? 52 weeks in a year, not 26. I was going biweekly, yeah. My math is really bad. It is. <laughs> um, anyways, I'm not excited about math, but I am excited about this three-year trip through the Bible. And so uh, we've come to that point now uh, in our journey through the Bible uh, where we're to the, uh, the giving of the law. That's law with a capital L, the law of God. Uh, sometimes referred to simply as uh, the commandments. And that's a high watermark uh, in the Bible. The giving of the law is a grace of God. We tend to think negatively about these things, but the reality is that the giving of the law is the grace of God to us because it is an essential component of God's plan of salvation. It's not the gospel. The law is not the gospel. It's not the good news. But the law has to be understood for what it is and what it does and what it means for us before we can sufficiently understand the good news and accept the good news for what it is. I've asked this question before. Do you have to understand the Old Testament before you can understand the New Testament? 
You have to understand the Old Testament before you can understand the New Testament. This is what you did last time I asked the question, too. You don't know. No. But you can't understand the New Testament well without understanding the Old Testament. Okay? Um, that's important. Um, and, I, and I'll add this this morning. You can't understand the Old Testament without understanding the New Testament either because of the progressive nature of Revelation as we move through revelation given in history, human history, as God intervenes and as God reveals. So, so in saying that, I would also say that even though now we're only in the second book of the Bible, we, you know, we did Genesis, now we're in Exodus, we're only in the second book of the Bible, but, but now we've got to start looking back too. Back to the creation and to the fall and, and to the judgment of Noah. Take a look at, uh, at this passage, Genesis five, uh, 6, sorry, 6, 5, and 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wait, I think we um, don't have that on the slide, but I'll read it again. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. Think, think about that statement, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a dark heart, isn't it? We don't like to think that our hearts, hearts are dark. And then uh, God, of course, didn't wipe the face of the earth at that time, he waited a lot of years um, in his grace, in his mercy. And then uh, verse 7 says, So the Lord uh, said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, uh, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens. I'm sorry that I have made them. I'm sorry that I've made them. Wow. And verse 8 says, Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, one of the things that we um, uh, come up against often, anyone who tries to uh, revere Scripture or proclaim Scripture is uh, the continuous uh, idea, attitude, and uh, uh, thought that, that the Bible is irrelevant. Um, the general idea is that uh, what was written 50 years ago is irrelevant, never mind what was written 5,000 years ago. That's kind of what we deal with, right? And I've been attempting throughout this series, one of the things, I guess you could say it's one of the goals that I have, personal goals, for this three-year journey through the Bible, is that we would understand just how extremely relevant the historical, biblical materials are to our lives. So this morning as we think about the law or the commandments, I, won't, I, I wonder and I, I hope that we can enter into Scripture and see what Scripture does for us and to us and in us as we allow Scripture to enter us 
and get into our uh, uh, living lives. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Help us, Lord, to get from it what um, you want for us to get. Lord, that, that as we enter these passages, Lord, help us to enter them. Help us to, to really uh, dive deep into them that we might have them uh, enter deep into our hearts and that we would be changed this day according to your will. By the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. What a beautiful uh, descriptive metaphor God uses right there. Did you catch that? Beautiful, beautiful metaphor. He says, like, like uh, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. There's that strong, not only is it a beautiful metaphor, but it's a strong relational element. I brought you to myself. Uh, interesting in the New Testament at one point where Jesus talks about Jesus calling the disciples and says, and he called them that they might be with him. Isn't that beautiful? It is. Um, Verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Um, Josh, would you be so kind to get me some water? I'm having a bit of an issue with my throat. Did you go for it? Thank you. Thank you. All right, a couple things here really quick. One, God treasures us. Let that sink into you. Let it sink into you. God treasures us. He said, you will be uh, my treasure. Like a uh, treasured possession. We belong to him and he treasures us. The second thing there is it is God's will and desire and the purpose for which we are saved, the purpose for which he calls us unto himself and saves us unto himself is that we would live for him now that we belong to him. And when we do, we function as a kingdom of priests. Think about that. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a priest or not. And that whole that whole imagery has been extremely distorted, obviously, in our culture. But in the biblical sense that he means it here. I don't know if you've ever thought of it, but over in the New Testament, and many of you would be aware of this, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Last week, at the end of the message time, we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the lives of the first believers and the beginnings of the early church and how that, that, that was uh, the blessing of it, but also the responsibility of it. 
as we serve him. And look at this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is not just, again, this is not just something way back in the book of Exodus that has no relevance uh, this side of the cross. It has, it has a lot of relevance. It's talking about God's desire for us as a people. Remember, not just speaking to individuals, but as a people, we, we are called to this. We're called to be, uh, to be this together. That last statement uh, there uh, um, in verse 9, uh, out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's, uh, that's helpful if you... Uh, thank you very much, honey. This is my wife. I like her. <laughs> I like her a lot. She likes me most of the time, too. She doesn't like being up here. I can tell you that. Um, yeah, so keep that in mind, that their part about, about being uh, called out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, I think that's in a few songs we sing. But, but uh, keep that in mind, because that's very helpful as you make your journey through this here, uh, through the, over the course of the next numbers of weeks and months, you know, through the scriptures. Uh, and certainly today, as we talk about the law, and the role that plays in how God, how God calls us out of darkness into light, right? Um, okay, let's read on. Exodus chapter 19, verse 7 to 20. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am going to uh, come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Did I just read that right? Really? The Lord will come down in the sight of all the people? You realize you're reading something like that. This, this is like never anything like that is. This has never happened before, okay? This is all new. New people, new relationship, and this is, this is really new. Um, take, and, and, and you should set limits, verse 12. Limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand, verse 13, shall touch him. But he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the, fir for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Let me paraphrase that whole section and say that, 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 the basic idea here is not only is this something really new going to happen, but it's not only really new, it's really big. 
so big that you, you can't wrap your mind around it. In three days' time, it's never happened before, but it's going to happen here. In three days' time, right here, right now, right in front of you. Verse 16 and, and following uh, down to verse 20 says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. It, you, know, you, you read this, and it's like, it's so hard to really get yourself into this because here we are sitting here in nice, comfortable, warm. Uh, some of you are starting to fall asleep because the air is not moving very well. Uh, you know, and, and it's so hard to put ourselves into what this was like, but, but try, okay? Try to imagine what this would be like. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of the kiln. And the whole mountain shook. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in the thunder. <laughs> the, Lord, the Lord came down. Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Verses 21 through 25 <coughs> that conclude that chapter, chapter 19, basically reiterate uh, the, the, the scene and the magnitude of the scene. And it's there to just to, again, when God repeats himself, uh, even if it's not verbatim, when God repeats himself, he's, he's, he's stressing the point. And he wants us to understand how big a deal this is. And, and as we come to verse uh, to chapter 20, because that's where we want to read now is in chapter 20, um, where we'll focus our thoughts, um, try to appreciate the context that all this is being said in. So as we come to Exodus 20, um, verses 1, uh, and we'll read up to verse 8 maybe. Verse 1 says, The Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the Lord your God, I, the Lord your God, Yahweh, I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall do uh, no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And that, that's what we just read are the first four of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we refer to them as the Ten Commandments, and there are ten commandments in this list in chapter 20. Um, 
But the last are stated rather succinctly, without a lot of commentary, the last six that we're going to read in a moment. But uh, these first four are elaborated on. And there's a few things I, I think that we could stop at this point and, and, and ask ourselves the reason for that. And I believe um, the reason is pretty straightforward and pretty um, important. They come first. You can group the Ten Commandments into two groups, actually. The first four commandments, uh, all ten of the Ten Commandments, involve our relationships. The first four involve our relationship with God. The last six involve our relationship with one another. But of the ten, the first four are focused are on more and elaborated on more because they are a priority. That doesn't mean the others aren't important, but it means the others follow from. And what that means practically for you and I is this, that our relationship with one another and the quality of our relationship with one another will be largely determined by our, the quality of our relationship with God. You come into the New Testament and, and you'll, be to, you'll be told there, Jesus will say, seek first the kingdom of God, all these other things will be added unto you. Put God first. Give God first place in your life. You'll be amazed at how other things will fall in place when you put God first in your life. And that's reflected here in the Ten Commandments. The first four being about a relationship with God and the last six that follow more succinctly being about a relationship with uh, one another. Um, let's read the last six. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 through 17 says, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land your Lord, the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's interesting you read that. Like how many of you have a donkey? Anybody here have a donkey? Hey, Heather has a donkey. Yeah, Brian and Heather have a donkey. Okay, let's try. Let's try uh, how many of you have a maidservant? Okay, good. Um, so, so this is completely irrelevant, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. It's just as relevant today as it was 5,000 years ago. <laughs> Everybody that's married has a male servant. Is that what you said? Yeah. I caught that. I heard that. And you might be right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's imperative that we understand uh, well, hopefully well, how uh, these, this portion of the Word of God fits into the whole uh, overall storyline of the Bible, the drama of redemption, salvation history as it's sometimes referred to. And we could, um, you know, uh, we could park here on these commandments and we could drill down for weeks, months, even years because it's such a big subject and there's just so much here. And as you go on through the, through the scriptures, you know, you come in the New Testament and you have the, the scribes. Well, who were the scribes? You have the scribes and the Pharisees. Who were the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, the scribes were the, the experts in the law. That's what they could go to their whole life to studying the law. Now, sometimes the term the law means the Ten Commandments. More often, it's a reference to the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. And sometimes they just say Moses. And when they said Moses... 
people knew that they meant the law. That's how significant the law was and is throughout uh, biblical revelation and salvation history. And so uh, we're not going to be able to drill down deep here today uh, on this, but, but hopefully we'll be able to make a few, uh, a few observations that will be help, helpful for us. I've already made two important ones, I think two important ones. One, that all ten of the commandments have to do with our relationships. And two, that the, uh, the first four uh, are the priority because they involve a relationship with God and that the others flow from that. But let me make a third observation here, and that is an observation I think that you would agree with me is an obvious thing, and that is, is that the, the uh, commandments tend to be uh, prohibitive. Um, I think I can use that word because they're stated, uh, if you will, in the negative. In other words, eight of the Ten Commandments begin, you will not, or you shall not, okay? And we hate the word no, right? How many of you have raised children in one, some form or of a fashion, you know? Do you, have you ever seen a three-year-old that likes the word no? And your answer is no. Um, the law is we even you think about the law of the land, okay? And forget about the law of Moses for a moment. Well, no, don't forget about the law of Moses. Um, but think about the law of the land. What you know? What's it there for? Well, in very common understanding, you would say it's there to keep people from doing stuff that we don't want them to do that they shouldn't do, that people shouldn't do, right? So it is, it is pro, uh, prohibitive. The law is st- uh, prohibitive and is stated in, uh, usually in prohibitive terms. Now, not everybody's happy with that. I came across this article online, and, and, and it's called The Ten Commandments, colon, tagline, um, more harm than good, question mark. And then the other tagline, how language impacts our daily lives by Kelly Campbell, Ph.D., posted in August of 2014. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I think I might have a look at that. So I did. Um, like most uh, articles in these day and age, it's like one page long. I'm thinking, how can you write an article about a subject like that in one page? But, hey, that's the, that's the, that's the culture we live in. Anyways, so I read this little wee short article, and she says, language is powerful. And I said, right on. Girl, I agree with you. Then she says, the phrase, thou uh, shalt not kill. Oh, by the way, it was posted, this article was posted in psychologytoday.com, just so you know. She says, language is powerful. Then she says, the, the phrase, thou shalt not kill, might read better as, I will honor human life. So basically, she's saying that, I think I can improve on that. But isn't that what all unbelief says? I think I can improve on that. I think it is. Then she goes on to say this. This is fascinating stuff here. She says, Of the Ten Commandments, I find thou shalt not commit adultery most interesting because my research focuses on couple relationships. And I often wonder why so many people commit infidelity even though they strongly disapprove of it. This is interesting. Okay, you're listening? She says, could the negative emphasis within the Ten Commandments help explain the mismatch? 
If people are striving for fidelity, for fidelity, focusing on the word adultery may not elicit their desired outcome. As the saying goes, most people cheat because they're paying attention to what they're missing rather than what they have. Now, I have to think that's true. I think that, I think that is true. Then she says, in other words, focus on the positive rather than the negative and see what good comes your way. And I have to say, that could be lethal. Now, the condescending attitude that comes with these types of statements is, is pretty hard to miss. It's like I said before, you know, people 50 years ago didn't know anything. People 5,000 years ago, what did they know, right? So there is that whole condescending, arrogant kind of thing. How do you say that? Anyways, whatever, however you say it, it's just, it's there. You see it everywhere, all through our culture, right? That, that's that, that just kind of an arrogance uh, with regard to anything that happened before they were born. Um, like, hello, world, here I am. I'm here to fix all your problems, you know. Like, yeah, whatever. Anyways, um, do we need the prohibitions? Do we need the Ten Commandments? As a society, would we, would we be okay if we just were to allow the commandments to fade into history? It's not a, it's not a um, hypothetical question. I think we could all say that we are seeing that. And it's amazing to me how quickly our minds forget about some of the realities that we live with day in, day out, that we've been living with for thousands of years that have not changed one iota. Right hasn't changed. Wrong hasn't changed. And temptation hasn't changed. Do you honestly think that temptation has changed in the last 5,000 years? I think back to where we started our conversation today when I put that website photo up. You know, the reality that I experience in my life and what I see with my eyes is that we live in a fallen world filled with sinful hearts and constant temptation. That's my life. <laughs> and it doesn't, I don't enjoy admitting it, but to be honest, that's my life. Those are the realities of life in this world and uh, somebody's wonderful speculations about things that they know far uh, little more little about than they sometimes think they do. That's why they call it pop psychology, by the way. Did you, you know that the social sciences are not real sciences? Did you know that? Now, now they won't tell you that, right? They will tell you that they're dealing with science. Um, and I don't mean to trash all 
of the social sciences. I think that I think the study of psychology and study of sociology can be helpful. But there's a lot of problems there that don't get admitted to. And a lot of pride. I think a big part of the problem is that we're not willing to go deep enough and look at our hearts and be honest about our hearts. I look at the pit, the, the, the article. Of this well, I don't mean to. I don't. I don't mean to bog down on the article, but, but, I just. I, I, I don't know. I look at the article and it has a woman's picture. She looks like she's maybe thirty, maybe, and I'm thinking, man, I, I'd like to, you know, give you ten years and 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 then go visit you and 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 and, and sit down and say, hey, you know, like, how would you feel if your daughter decided to marry a man who doesn't believe? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Or for that matter, how would you feel if your if your daughter married a, a man who didn't believe thou shalt not kill? Or thou shalt not steal? Or thou shalt not bear false witness. Or thou shalt not covet. Anyways. Um, why are the commandments given in prohibitive terms? Because God knows where we live. And what he gives us in the commandments is invaluable. You know, think of temptation as a door. It's the territory of our hearts, right? Whenever there is a wrong, there is a right, many of them, in fact. But we are either uh, resisting temptation or we are giving in to temptation. And every time we win a battle with temptation or every time we lose a battle with temptation, either way, there's another temptation right behind it. That's the reality. That's the territory of our lives. That's the territory of our hearts. Why is temptation such a consistent reality? Because sin is a consistent reality. Picture a grandfather, if you will, with a little guy on his knee. And the grandfather says to the little guy, Buddy, Whatever you do, don't do this. And I think if you can picture that, you would have pictured what is merely a very human reflection of what God does for us when he tells us what is wrong. And we have that in the commandments of God. And I think the tendency we, we see in a world to see that as a negative thing with negative consequences says more about the psychology of our day than it does about the reality of our hearts. It's interesting, the Old Testament Jews, they, uh, they thought the law was beautiful. 
I just read Psalm 19 uh, yesterday morning in my, my devotional time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing, really. But uh, anyways, i got to move on here a little bit. Let me see. Um, yeah. So um, remember that the scriptures are given to us. Why? Why did God give us the Bible? To reveal himself to us that we might know him. And the scriptures are the revelation by God of God. So when we read the commandments... We're not reading arbitrary rules that God made up. He didn't just put a bunch of big rules in a hat and pull out these ones and say, oh, these look good. I think we'll go with these. They are rather a reflection of his character. The commandments tell us not only what is wrong, but the commandments tell us what God is like. And so I've said that before. I'm saying it again this morning because sometimes we think that these things are arbitrary when they're not. They're woven into the fabric of life. More, more than that, they are. Uh, the, the nature and character of God is the fabric of life. So as you go down through the commandments, um, God is to be worshipped alone because there is none like him. We're not ever to confuse anyone or anything with God or in any way equal to God. Why? Because when we understand what God is like, we understand there is none like him. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Number two, the reason we do not, we are not to ever attempt, that's not ever to attempt, to fashion any kind of image of God, is because no, no image can, can uh, adequately uh, portray God to us. They all would be grossly inadequate to represent him. He is not like that. He is unlike anything or anyone else. And this is the essence of what it means to worship Yahweh, the one true God. There is no one like him, nothing like him. Number three, we are not to ever use his name in any way that would seem to diminish him rather than showing him the utmost respect. All, he deserves the ultimate respect. Why? Because of who he is and what he is like. Number four, we are to rest because God rested. Number five, we are to honor our parents because when we honor those who bestow, who God bestows honor on, upon, it is part of honoring God. When you dishonor your parents, you are dishonoring God. We are not to commit murder because God is a God of life, not a God of death. We are not to commit adultery because God is faithful. We are not to uh, steal because God is just. We are not to lie against others because God is a God of truth and of justice. And we are not to uh, covet because God is a God who satisfies us with good things and withholds no good thing from us, and most importantly, because he is enough. He is more than enough. 
And that takes us all the way back up to the top. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Understanding who God is and what he is like. And we see that in the Ten Commandments. They're not arbitrary. They're no more arbitrary than God is. Sin is how the world is designed not to work. But sin is what we know. What we don't know and desperately need to know is life. And life is not ever found in sin. No matter how much we want to believe sometimes that it is. And so God says, thou shalt not. The law of God is perfect. I would encourage you to go to the book of Romans in your own time and uh, read what Paul has to say about the law there. The law is perfect. The law is good. And the law is given to us out of the grace of God. So for me to reject the law or to devalue the law would be like throwing my mirror away because it makes me look ugly instead of going and washing my mug combing my hair, going to the barber, whatever, whatever you do. Put on makeup? Probably not, but some of you. I think the negative attitude that we have towards the law is uh, something that's deep inside of us. On a very profound level of our consciousness, we do not like to be restricted. And what that involves is we think we know better. I mean, think about it. Why don't we like restrictions? It's because we think we know better. Um, Romans 3. Take a look. Uh, with the, Romans talks a lot about the law. But Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was never given to save us. We're not saved by the law. No one can be saved by the law. If you, if you, if you read the New Testament at all, you, you should know that much. But that doesn't mean the law is bad. That doesn't mean the law is useless. It serves a very important purpose in God's plan of salvation. It really does. Because without the law, without the guilt of the law, there's no need for the gospel. Everybody's okay. And if, the, and, and if, you, if you can uh, propagate a worldview that says there are no commandments, there is no wrong, there's no right and wrong, everything's okay, then you have dismantled the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, we preach the law. Not as the gospel, but as necessary understanding to educate people on, on make ourselves aware of our need for the gospel, right? Law, laws 
boundaries, morality exists because God exists. Boundaries are good because God is good. Defenses are there for our own protection and blessing. It's only the foolishness of our hearts that sees the boundaries set by God as an infringement on our freedoms. They are rather a protective acts of love. And as our culture continues to pound and pound and pound away on us, there are no commandments because there's no right and wrong and there's no authority. Where is that taking us? Listen, beloved. Some things are wrong. No matter what the world tells you, God says they're wrong. And it's not just about morality then, it's about authority. Right? Because God Almighty, the creator of all, Lord of heaven and earth, is the authority. Not just to tell us what is wrong, but to tell us what is. Because what is wrong is determined by what is, is. That's reality. This is the reality. This is the reality of the world we live in. It's a fallen world, and our hearts are dark. And we are tempted every single day to do what? To open that door. And God says, don't. We see that as a bad thing. Because our hearts are not only dark, our hearts are foolish. What God has done in giving us the law is invaluable to us. And that's why the latter prophets read the Psalms. Oh, how I love your law. You see, it's human nature. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. We want to live in the world with all the benefits of the rules. But we don't want to be accountable to follow the rules or to live with the consequences if we don't. And that's part of human nature too. This morning, I, I, one of the things I want you to really think about and I want us to, 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 uh, uh, to get this is that the giving of the law is an essential component of God's plan of salvation. It's not the gospel, it's not the good news, but it has to be understood for what it is and what it does before we can sufficiently understand the good news. Uh, look at this quote from Martin Luther, and I'm almost done. Martin Luther said, Once a man has been humbled by the law and brought to the knowledge of himself, then he becomes truly repentant. For true repentance begins with fear and with the judgment of God. He sees that he is such a great sinner that he cannot find any means to be delivered from his sin by his own strength, effort, or works. I love the question that comes out of the um, curriculum. If I can find it, I think I wrote it here somewhere. Uh, yeah, here it is. This is out of the curriculum this week. It says, do you tend to see yourself as a good person in need of a little help from God or as a sinner in desperate need of him? How does the gospel inform your view? And if you just see yourself as a, as a, a good person who could, could use a little help from God, you are not saved because you don't get saved with that worldview. You don't, you don't get saved forgiven for your sin and given eternal life by 
the works of the law or by trying to be a good person or by being a good person or comparing yourself to other people. I'm going to wrap up here in a moment. I've got four copies of this How Good is Good Enough by Andy Stanley. It's a good little book. And uh, I'll, give him, I'll give you one of these if you would like to have one. If you've read it before or you can get your hands on one, you don't need to take one of these. But if you'd like one, I, I do have four copies here. I might be able to scrounge up another one or two. But this is really, really uh, important. You know, the New Testament says a lot about the law. It says a lot about the commandments. I'm finishing up with this. I am. Here we go. You ready? You would do well, and I would do well, to know what the New Testament says about the law in general and about the specific commandments. Because the New Testament touches on and elaborates a lot on the different commandments. It's a lot of learning there, right? But the most important thing this morning is that we would understand that the commandments are real. And so is the guilt that results from them. But, and here it is, the but part, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is every bit as real. And it is in even greater reality because the grace and forgiveness of Jesus is greater than all our sin. Romans chapter 5. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is greater than all our sin. But if you don't see yourself as a sinner, if there really is no guilt, because there really is no wrong, you'll never get saved. You'll never receive the forgiveness of God because you don't think you deserve, you need to be forgiven. Not, deserve, not deserving forgiveness is a whole other subject. We, want, we, want, uh, we don't have time for that. But here, focus, focus, focus. All right. Uh, let's stand together. Did you get that last part? Because that, that's like, I mean, there's so much here. Like I say, we could park here and drill down on this for weeks and months and years. You, you know, the New Testament has so much to say about this. But understand this morning why it's there. As we come to Mount Sinai in our journey through the Bible. How relevant is it for us and what does God want to do in our lives with it? He wants to reveal himself and his holiness and his perfection to us. And a big part of his motivation for doing so is so that we would see ourselves coming up short, Paul says, every time. So that we would look beyond see him, the one who lived a perfect life, never committed a single sin in word, in thought, in action, even once, and laid down his life. Moses lived to be 120 years old. Abraham lived, I don't know how old, hundreds of years. Jesus, 33 maybe years old, laid down his life for you and me. And every single person on this planet is a sinner in need of Jesus. That's the most important part. What about you? Have you personally 
If it ain't personal, it ain't happening. Because remember what this is all about? Relationships. God wants a relationship with you. And your sin is preventing you from having a relationship with God. Unless you've done something about that. And the only thing that God says that you can do about that is go to Jesus. Will you do that this morning? It's really simple. You just have to humble yourself. You have to admit. You have to confess. Not to me. I can't help you with that. I'm just another sinner like you are. But if you could come to him, ah, his grace is greater than all your sin. The blood of Jesus paid for it all. Will you? That's the question. Will you allow the word of God to penetrate that dark, prideful heart of yours? All of us have it. And just look to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Will you do that? Let's pray. Will you pray, with, will you pray this prayer, prayer with me? If you've never prayed a prayer like this, I invite you just to say, uh, Lord God in heaven, I recognize before you that I am a sinner. Based on your word, based on the proclamation of your word and the, the teaching of uh, your scripture, I recognize that I need to be saved. I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. I need to have my guilt washed away. And so I come to you in simple, humble faith, again, because your word says that Jesus is the Savior and that he's the only way to the Father and that he is the only thing that can uh, deal with the sin and guilt in my heart, my life. Lord, I just come to you in simple faith. Lord Jesus, would you please save me? Would you please take me and make me your own that I can live for you and, and Lord, I would just give you thanks and praise all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God bless you. And uh, if you would like a, one of these, talk to me. Talk to me anyway. I'd love to talk to you about your relationship with the Lord.